Luther hymnals to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, you will see that it is organized by Lord's Days. And um, as makes good sense, we're going to begin this morning, this afternoon. No, we're still in the morning. We're going to begin this morning by reciting uh, the three questions and answers of Lord's Day number two together. So I'll give you just a moment to find that. I do want to encourage you to read through these questions. I, I post them on the worship blog, so you can always find them there. You have them in your hymnals, of course. And to think about them a bit during the week, either before or afterwards. Uh, that's really going to help you to fix these truths in your thinking. Beginning at question number three. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37-40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I've discovered, maybe it's because I have the microphone on, but I only hear myself, and I don't see anyone doing this. This is supposed to be a responsive reading. So I don't want to turn the microphone off, but we're going to do uh, question and answer number five together and say it like you believe it, because I know you do. Question number five. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So in New Hampshire, we have a problem with radon gas. Uh, Radon gas is uh, the result of uranium decaying, and it decays and gets stored up in areas often where there's a lot of granite. And since New Hampshire is the granite state, it's not entirely surprising that we have a bit of a problem with radon gas. And it's actually a serious issue. Um, Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer in America, And it is the leading cause of lung cancer among those who do not smoke. Now, the good news is, is radon mitigation systems are inexpensive, easy to install, and they are effective. The bad news is, is radon doesn't have a smell. And so you just happily go throughout your day getting this uh, radon gas poisoning that eventually could actually kill you without even realizing it unless you test for radon gas. Here's the key point. Ignorance is not bliss. If you have your home tested and discover that it has a radon gas problem, that, in fact, is a great blessing. For that allows you to take simple and inexpensive steps which will virtually eliminate your health risks. Knowing the danger is a great blessing. But it is only a great blessing if you act on what you learn. In a much more profound way, that's what today's catechism questions and answers are about. They are about God alerting us to the fact that we have a problem, a problem much more serious than radon gas. Uh, God is using his law to alert us to the fact that we are by nature in a state of misery and guilt. It's also about the gracious work of the Lord in exposing our sin, 
precisely so that as he exposes our sin, we will flee from ourselves to find a faithful and sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. Right? So this is good news that God is using his law to uncover our sinful state while we can still do something about it by embracing Jesus Christ. There are three questions and answers for Lord's Day number two. Uh, Question three gives us what we call the first use of the law. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Question four gives us a summary of the law of God. And question five makes clear that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. We're going to spend about half of our time on the so-called first use of the law because uh, that's the area that involves the the greatest amount of um, diversity of, of, of issues and the greatest amount of effort we have to make in order to make it clear in our own thinking. It turns out that the summary of God's law is fairly straightforward, and even more straightforward than that is the fact that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So let me see a show of hands. We're going to start with the three uses of the law. How many of you know that expression, the three uses of the law? Now keep your hands up. If I was to call on you, could you give me all three uses of the law and explain them? Yeah, very good. It's always good to see the elders have their hands up. You know, they, um, Otherwise, we're in trouble. We, gotta, we have to talk about this. Um, in the Reformed world, we have traditionally spoken about the law of God having three uses. The first use of the law of God is it reveals our sin and misery so that seeing ourselves in that light, we are driven from ourselves to turn to Jesus Christ to embrace him as a faithful savior. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is commonly called the civil use of the law, and that is that law can be used to restrain sin. Um, I'm going to ask, actually, how the law does this. Because the law of God is public knowledge, people who might otherwise be inclined to do things that they really ought not to do, bad things, sin against God, sin against their neighbors, um, they might be happy to do that, except they don't want to encounter the penalties for doing that when those sins have become laws, right? They, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Boy, am I dating myself there uh, with Beretta. But, uh, you know, people sometimes just don't want the punishment. But actually, even more than punishment, because many sins are not crimes, it's simply the fact that there's a clear marker laid down. People don't want to have the shame of being publicly exposed as being across that line. And so the law of God, simply by being announced publicly, even if it isn't salvific in those individuals' lives, lives, can restrain sin in society. The third use of the law is as a guide for us Um, in terms of how we are to truly love God and love our neighbors as our grateful response to the Lord's prior grace. Now, if you were with us when we uh, introduced the Heidelberg Catechism, you know that that is by far, by far the most common way the law of God is used in the Bible. It's used as a guide for us in our grateful response to God's prior grace to show us how to live, what it means to love God. You know, it's nice to say I love God, but what does that look like? What does it mean to love my neighbor? The the law of God shows us that. We actually have two problems with this traditional formula. It's really baked in. 
I'm not going to change it. You're not going to change it. But there are two problems with this threefold usage um, tradition of talking about the law this way. Um, the first is pretty simple. When you hear something as first, second, and third, you might think first is most important. I want you to realize that's not the case. In fact, the Bible does not speak hardly at all of the first use of the law. It, it shows up almost nowhere. Almost everywhere in the Bible, the law is spoken of in terms of the third use, and the second use is something that we just kind of glean from experience. Uh, so you ought to realize that this is not the primary way the law of God is meant to be used. But secondly, this is going to seem really paradoxical to you, that phrase, the first use of the law, can be misleading if we think it's a way that we're supposed to use the law. It is a way that God uses the law. But the first use of the law only happens when we try to misuse the law. Let me say that again. The first use of the law only happens when we try to misuse the law. See, the law was never given to us as a ladder for us to climb up to God, that we could be justified, as it were, by doing it. And um, the way the first uh, use of the law happens is, is when someone comes along going, I'm basically a good person. Right? God's going to accept me based on my deeds. And then the law is like a floodlight, and it says, well, really, can you do this? Right? As Paul says, I'm going to come to this a little bit later, you know, when the law said, thou shalt not covet, and I said, well, yeah, I'm a good person, I could do that. And then I realized, I can't do that. Right? But, but that only comes into play because Paul was trying to misuse the law for something it wasn't intended to do, to justify himself and to show that he was a law keeper. Right? I think it's actually a useful thing to keep in mind. The first use of law only takes place when we first try to misuse the law. And isn't it gracious of God? Even when we take his good gift and try to twist it, sometimes God uses that still for our good. Well, this morning we're really talking about the first use of the law in these three catechism questions. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, and this is the passage I just mentioned about coveting. Paul says, What then shall we say? But the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul is not saying he didn't understand that he was tempted to do things that he shouldn't do before the law came into place. But it was the putting down of this clear marker that when he tried to say, oh yeah, I could do that. I mean, I'm not like the hoi polloi here. I'm one of the really polished Pharisees. You know, a Pharisee of Pharisees am I. And then I realized I couldn't do it. And I was convicted of my weakness, my brokenness, and my sin. I want to say, by the way, that's actually a very common experience for people, either in coming to faith, right, right before they come to faith, or actually even after they've been a Christian for a while. They have some area of their life, but they think that they can just, you know, manage it. I actually felt this way when I was a young man. I've been a Christian since I was a little kid, and by grace of God. But I remember when I was coming out of the Naval Academy and going to be an officer in the Marine Corps, we were really a can-do people, you know? You put your head down, you charge through brick walls, you do whatever is necessary, you're going to make it work. And I'm thinking about my Christian life that way. And I'm thinking, you know, in five years, because I'm just going to make a list of my sins, because I, you know, I knew I was a sinner, and I'll just kind of check them off. And you'll be amazed at how sanctified I'm going to be by the time I'm 27. 
Uh, some, some of you are thinking what happened to him since then, right? Um, but actually, my failure to be able to do those things was used by God in a gracious way in my life. I've been a Christian for you know, more than 15, 16 years by that time. It's used by God as a gracious way in my life to say, no, it's by my grace. Right? It's not by your works. You don't have it within you to bring this to pass. So back before Jesus overtook Paul on the Damascus Road, he had imagined he was a really good Jew. He had thought of himself as a lawkeeper, and the law clearly says, thou shalt not covet. It's like a spotlight on him. I should say, keep in mind that unbelievers do know there's things that are bad in their life. Um, but think about, you know, you're out in a, going shopping in a supermarket or something in nighttime, and somebody comes and scrapes the side of your car, and you're not parked under a light. So you come out and you look, and you kind of can tell something's wrong, but you know what? It's dark. You can kind of ignore it, too. And then someone drives up with a pickup truck, one of your friends, and just puts the floodlights on it. You can see everything brilliantly. That's what the law does. Right? You know, if, if you're an um, unbeliever, you can go through this life realizing things aren't quite right, but I can mostly ignore it until God shows up with his Holy Spirit and his word, and he says, I'm going to put the bright spotlights on your life, and it doesn't look nearly as good as you thought it did. Uh, so Paul experienced that in his own life, and this is actually why he ends Romans 7 by writing this. Wretched man that I am... Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the first use of the law. It exposes that I'm a wretched man, and it points me to Jesus Christ as the solution, as the faithful Savior who will deal with my wretchedness. Um, No, I'm not going to ask for people to show hands how many of you have experienced this. That wouldn't be right. But I trust that many of you actually have or will in the future. You're going to be thinking, even if you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, I kind of got this down. I know what I'm doing in this area of my life. And God's going to say, no, it's actually by grace from beginning to end, even there. right? It's always by grace through faith because of Christ. Any thoughts or questions on answer number three or the first use of the law? Because right? the, the question here is, how do I know my misery? And the answer is the law of God. God takes his word, he illumines my sin, and he makes me aware of it. And that's a gracious thing, because now you can do something about it. Any questions or thoughts at all on that? Yeah, John. Well, I think it's, it's nice that it says, like, how do you... It makes it personal, because we kind of want to make our misery come from something outside of ourselves. Like, hmm. Yes, so John is saying it's really good that it's personal. Actually, one of the nice things about the Heidelberg Catechism is it's personal. But John is pointing out that it's saying, I am the problem, rather than saying, yeah, I'm in a state of misery, because look at Hollywood, look at the culture, look at our politicians. They've given me this terrible situation. And the Heidelberg Catechism, because it's what the Bible says, says, no, actually, the problem is me. Wonderful um, comment, by the way, um, uh, the very quotable Chesterton, not over, always entirely orthodox, but um, more than a century ago now, there was a newspaper contest. It was kind of a feeling of malaise in the land, and they were asking people to write in 
what's the problem with the world today? And people wrote in these long essays and so on. And um, Chesterton simply wrote in, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And actually, I think that shows a profound insight, right? The problem in my world is mostly me. There is sin out there, too, but it's mostly me. Uh, other thoughts or questions? Yes, Charlie. So it reminds me of Romans uh, 5.20, that the law gave you to increase the trespass over Yeah, so Charlie's pointing out that in Romans 5, Paul talks about how the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, it's very important to note when you read Romans 5, Paul is not saying that there was, in fact, no sin before the law was given. What actually happens, though, is when you put down the boundary marker, there's that transgressing of the boundary marker, right? So the more law there is, the more transgression there is, and God is using that to make clear we need a savior, right? By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Ben. So Ben's making the point, it doesn't always have to be a misuse of the law. I do think that the ordinary aspect of this is, it still is revealing my sin on a standard of if I was only a law keeper. And if you came to that very same commandment and said, God wants me to love my neighbor like this, and I'm not doing it, the goal there is to guide me into loving my neighbor like this. That's really a big part of why the law is given. Yeah. But I think, I think it's a fair thing. So maybe I overstated a little bit by saying always. That's, we got to tell our children sometimes, you know. That, is it always the case that I always say no and never let you go out? Um, well, probably not. Yeah. So I, I think that's a fair point, Ben. Uh, other thoughts or comments? Let's move on to the next question. As I promised, uh, question to answer number four is more straightforward. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, this, of course, is the way that Jesus summarizes the law, and we actually even have the quotation in here, uh, the reference in here from, from Matthew. But here's my question. Why do you think the Heidelberg Catechism chose to use this summary of the law to make the point regarding the first use of the law? Any thoughts on that? We're talking about your inability to keep the law, and it doesn't say... I mean, it could have very easily gone with coveting, right? I mean, that's what Paul does in Romans 7, or all manner of laws. Why does it go with this summary of the law? 
So yeah, John's suggestion is, is that this leads us to that positive aspect of loving God, which is really the emphasis of how the law works in terms of our grateful response to God. I don't think that's true here because this is, these all three questions here go together to talk about the first use of the law revealing our state of misery. So why would they use this summary of the law of loving God and loving our neighbor to reveal our a state of misery and guilt? That, that's the question I'm asking. Be bold. Yeah, Ben. I guess because the entire law is not to Yeah, that's right. So Ben said it's because the entire law is revealed in those commandments, and that's absolutely true. Of course, that's kind of what it means by a summary. But, but I'm asking for something else. Why else do you think they might have done it? Yes. Yes, probably get that part of I think that's right. The answer was because it's getting to the heart of the matter. See, if you think about the law of God as though it's an Olympic sport to try to keep all these commandments, you can start giving yourself credit for getting a bronze medal. I mean, I didn't win, you know, but I tried hard. I worked at it really well. I applied myself. You know, I, I, I mostly keep the Sabbath and I tithe. And think about, uh, we looked in um, evening worship a few weeks ago with, the Pharisee, you know, I tithe of everything I get. I fast twice a week, right? It's easy for us to do that. And we can think the problem is actually external to us, as though the problem is those obstacles are so hard to keep, but I'm, I'm giving it a good shot. Now, you guys actually hear this all the time. Uh, don't you hear people say to you, yeah, but she has a good heart. Oh, Heidelberg Catechism saying you do not have a good heart. That's the problem. See, the problem is not simply that you didn't keep the Sabbath as you were supposed to. The problem is you don't love God as you're supposed to. You don't love your neighbor as you're supposed to. And here's an interesting thing, by the way. The Catechism quotes Jesus summarizing the law like this, but someone else in the New Testament summarizes the law like this. A scribe, a lawyer. He actually gets described as a lawyer by Luke. But he's a, he's a religious scribe that works in the law of God. And, you know, this man comes to Jesus, and he's trying to figure out from Jesus, you know, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, if someone asked you that question, you'd probably say, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's a great answer. But actually, Jesus uses the first use of the law here. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, you're an expert. You're a religious scribe. You're a lawyer. And the scribe answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The scribe gave the very same summary of the law that Jesus did. He was right. So Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? 
Jesus is using the first use of the law. He said, well, go ahead. You know, show us you can do that. Remember what the scribe says next? Or actually, we're told about the scribe. He wanted to justify himself. You know, go and do the law. That's, that's way too broad. Go do this and live. He asked, who's my neighbor? You know, can, can we get this down to a manageable proportion of things? You know, I mean, I obviously can't love every person on the face of the earth, but maybe it's my wife, my kids, my immediate next-door neighbor, some people in the synagogue. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? You know the story about the Good Samaritan, right? There's all these religious people going along, and there's this guy on the side of the road, and he's a wretch, and he's been beaten up. He looks half dead. The priest walks by on the other side of the road. You know, the good religious people. Levite walks by, right? Doesn't do anything. And then a Samaritan comes by. And you got to remember for Jews, they're watching a movie. When you go Samaritan, everyone goes, right? Because Samaritans were the bad people. Do you know that Jews actually avoided going through Samaria? They would take this route through Jericho and go around to get up to Galilee rather than going through Samaria. It's one of the striking things about Jesus early on in the Gospel of John, going up and talking with the Samaritans and presenting them with who he is. Now, Jesus loved the Samaritans. For Jews, they were the evil enemy. The Samaritan comes along, and he takes care of this guy. He doesn't know him from Adam. He does know he's about a people that despises Samaritans. He binds up his wounds, puts them on his mule, takes him to an inn, tells the innkeeper, hey, you know what? Take care of this man. I'm going to come back. If I owe you anything else, I'll pay for it. Here's my question for you. How many times have you done that in your life? See, what Jesus says to this man that was trying to justify himself is, oh, you want to know who your neighbor is? That's the neighbor. Well, I actually asked him, he goes, which of these men was a neighbor to him? And, and the scribe says, well, you know, the man that helped him. He goes, yeah, you go do that. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. But I'm not going to let it be with us talking about the good Samaritan. I want to talk about us. How many times have you done that in your life? No, by God's grace, I do love my neighbors. Not as much as I should. I do love my neighbors. I sometimes help them. Most of the people that I've given meaningful help to are people that I care about, people I like, people I know. But I've sometimes helped strangers a little bit, you know, give them a ride, buy them a sandwich, or that kind of thing. I have never taken, you know, a week's pay and given it to a complete stranger to take care of their needs. And you know why that is? I do love my neighbor, but I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. And that's what the commandment says. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. And the truth is, I love myself more than I love my neighbors. And so I'm a lawbreaker. See, this very commandment that reveals the heart is used by Jesus to introduce this great parable. And it actually is quite challenging for us because, you know, I've been a Christian now more than 50 years more than 55 years, the best I can tell, and I still do not love my neighbor the way Jesus says the law applies to me. So that's a real challenging issue, and that's part of how this commandment gets to the heart. By the way, it can be helpful sometimes to think about our neighbors because we can really kid ourselves about loving God, but of course the very same issues in play. But you know, God never is found stranded on the side of the road uh, the way that this poor man was. And so the law, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, um, 
it makes clear that my heart is the problem inside. Let me say something about that, too. Uh, Martin Luther had a wonderful comment about this phrase of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that he really wrestled with before he experienced his reformed conversion, back when he was still wrestling with Catholicism and thinking, you know, God does his part, I do mine. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I haven't done that for five straight minutes in my entire life. Beloved, let me say, neither of you, or more importantly, neither have I. Right? I am so easily distracted by my own selfish desires, my needs. Um, I get a little bit of a knee ache. I, start, I stop hurting someone else so I can take care of my knee. I mean, by God's grace, not always, but certainly sometimes. And so the law of God reveals not simply that we don't win the gold medal. It reveals we have a problem from the inside out. Well, I'll leave you to apply the standard to your own life, but please remember the purpose of God using the first use of the law in this way is to help you love your neighbor better. But even more than that, it's to make you despair of yourself so that you flee from yourself to embrace a faithful Savior in Jesus Christ. You cannot live the Christian life, but Christ can live it through you. Wow, that was kind of sobering. Um, any thoughts or questions on this? <laughs> Anybody want to volunteer? You're the, you're, you know, I'm actually the good, good Samaritan. I'm the one who always takes care of my neighbors when they're in need. Uh, Charlie does. No, go ahead, Charlie. <laughs> one word of all. I'm, I'm not quite hearing you. All? It says all. All. That's, so it's everything. We can't give all. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still, I had difficulty picking up for some reason. All is the key. In the verse. Okay. Yeah, we, we don't do that. Well, let me be clear. Uh, so Charlie's saying we don't give our all. We can't give our all. Let me be clear. We are required to give our all. Right? This is not God saying, hey, I know you can't love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so it's okay. You make a good effort at it. That's how the world sees it. Right? We are required to do that. God requires of us perfect, personal, and perpetual righteousness. Yes, please. Wretched man that I am, he can save me. Thanks be to God. Yeah, that's it. We get back to the end of Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Sarah. I'm trying to encourage you too, though, because if you're a new believer, you look at it, I don't do these things, but I want to do these things. Uh. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so it's a wonderful thing to realize that God has changed your heart, and God is at work in you. So that's encouraging, and it should be encouraging. I'm going to let you talk again, because I see you looking at me like I've lost my mind, um, which I have. Um, that they, it is encouraging that the Lord is at work in you both to will and to do, that he is causing you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and to love your unbelieving neighbors as well, and yet to realize I am not yet what I'm supposed to be. And in fact, I won't be until Christ comes again. Did you have a follow-up on that? Because I thought I, I, thought I made you unhappy with my response. Um, yes? Yeah. 
So, so this is part of my point, is the first use of the law is sometimes talked about as something God uses to bring us to Christ the first time. When in fact, it's something that God does throughout our lives, because we always need to be brought back to Christ and to the gospel. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's for all of us too. Yeah, thank you, Jen. Sure, Charlie. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the question Charlie's asking is about the heart and soul, and is it talking in terms of our actual makeup? There's a debate in uh, anthropology about um, whether or not um, you have actually three fundamental parts or two fundamental parts. That is not the point here at all. It's heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the purpose of that is to say all of you, right? With everything you have, you are to love God. It's not designed to say use that to figure out whether or not you have a spirit and a soul or your spirit and the soul are the same thing or something like that. That's not the purpose here. But let's move on to the fifth question. If anything, the question and answer in number five is even more straightforward than number four. Can you live up to all of this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Can you live up to all this perfectly. And frankly, they have me at no. Right? I, I didn't need a lot of elaboration there. Uh, no, I cannot. Yet perhaps it's important to be explicit. We are not people with good hearts who sometimes make mistakes, even mistakes that hurt other people. Left to ourselves, we have a bad record because we have bad hearts. Right? That's why it says, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor, right? It's very strong language. Uh, here's an interesting truth that the Lord was trying to teach ancient Israel through the ceremonial law. Um, I'm going to talk about this this evening, so come back to the evening sermon, you'll hear quite a bit about this. Well, not, not quite a bit, a little bit about this. But when you think about the ceremonial law and how it worked in the Old Testament, one of the obvious things is, is the only people that need sacrifices for sin are sinners, so that's pretty straightforward. But I want you to think about a part of the ceremonial law that Christians tend to ignore because it's kind of icky to us, and that's being ceremonially unclean. And it turns out that the way God established the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, everybody in Israel would kind of frequently be ceremonially unclean. They'd have to bathe themselves, and they have to do things, and sometimes they'd have to go outside the camp. They'd have to tell other people, I'm unclean, right? Don't come near me. Well, it's kind of hard to think about going around saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, but I'm justified before God based on my works. And here's a really interesting thing about the ceremonial law. Um, if you bleed, you're unclean. So women in their menstrual cycles. Uh, men have um, semen emissions at night. They're unclean. Someone spits on you. That makes you unclean. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen to you a lot. Um, it's kind of gross. But... Do you notice a trend here? It actually turns out that whenever what's inside of you comes outside of you, it makes you unclean. God is saying you're unclean on the inside. And yet there's a really important exception to all this. 
Jesus Christ spits, makes mud, and heals someone's eyes. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. See, you and I are bad on the inside. Jesus is pure on the inside. The fact that we're bad should drive us to him. Because it's only in Christ where we find forgiveness. We heard this morning in the assurance of pardon, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Any last thoughts or questions before we wrap up here? Come back tonight. You'll hear more about Romans 7. It's good stuff. John, would you close in prayer?